Hello. Um, yeah, I, I said that I, I didn't want to give a presentation, but um, just be in conversation, because I've learned that I like being on every side of a conversation, and so I'm just, I hope we can, I think the rain stopped, so the biblical rains have calmed down, and um, yeah, just I, for this next hour, kind of what's on your mind, um, that we can have a back and forth. Um, I, I wish I'd had a better writing day. <laughs> today, today I'm in one of those days where, um, where I know I can't possibly do this. And the only good thing about doing this for a while is that I know that that's just a step along the way. And, um, but yeah, to the question of, uh, I mean, I, I think the, the, book, the book I'm trying to write now is hard because it's, um, it's so big. And I guess I guess I'm kind of known for that, but I, you know, it's a different thing to write about it than to to be in conversation about it. But I'm um, thank you for the way you describe what happens in the show. I think one one way I think about what happens in the show and has been happening, especially in these years, as the world has become so tender and tumultuous, um, is that the there's this narrative of our time that trended on Twitter 20 minutes ago and was in the New York Times this morning, which is just part of the story of our time. Um, but what gets privileged, and this comes in part out of what's happening, but it also comes in part out of what my, tradition, what my profession of journalism has learned to pay attention to, and what I think also we in the academy and in our intellectual life um, have taught to take seriously, which is what is catastrophic, corrupt, and failing. That's where we devote all our powers of investigation. And it's just not the whole story. And I think in a moment like this, where we are turn of century people and so many of the challenges that we have really you know, are, are existential, um, we also have to see and be part of the landscape of repair and 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 of reflection and of creating the new realities we want to inhabit as much as we are can be really clear about what needs to be torn down and and i think that one way i one way i would talk about what the people i interview have in common is that i see them and also the people who listen to this show as this, this generative narrative of our time, this just generative landscape. And, and that's what I'm trying to write about, is um, what do we want to live into and what do we actually know as human beings in our lives? I think there's a lot of intelligence that we possess in our lives that we don't apply to our life together. Um, and so that, that's kind of a general way to talk about what I'm trying to write about, and uh, I keep getting stuck because it's really complicated. And it also feels really presumptuous, you know, that, and it is presumptuous, and then this, you know, the, the voice over your shoulder that says, who are you? Who are you to pronounce that, that, that voice has been very present with me today? <laughs> but yeah, I'd just be interested if you want to talk about that, or if you listen to the show and 
there are things you're curious about, or if you want to talk about the world of podcasting, anything. Yeah. Just to pursue what you just said, mm -hmm. what, could you give us an example? Yeah. Make a more positive community or society. So, I spent um, I spent the first three months of this year. I live in Minnesota most of the time, but I spent the first three months of this year in, in, at at Stanford, but spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley. And I started thinking a lot about what I think about along those lines as social technologies or social arts. I think that we possess. Um, in our lives of intimacy, by, by which I mean, you know, family and, and friends, but, you know, even those groups are big. They're the people we live with, and there's extended family, and there are new friends and old, and, um, and there are the friendships and the, and the relationships we have in the workplace, which for so many of us is such a pr place of primacy. Um, and we have all these ways of, um, of, you know, not just knowing what we need to say, but choosing to say it in a way that it can be heard, which is just a really basic social art that we're not practicing in our life together. Um, I, you know, to say something that, one of these big statements that feels, that I hear a lot of people saying in different ways, but we don't know how to take seriously, um, well, let me say it this way. We are the generation, uh, not all of us, but enough of us who are learning to shine a light on hate and to take hate seriously, um, to even create legal categories around it. And I believe that that actually compels us, not just calls us, but makes it imperative that we get as serious about what love would look like as a public good. And I remember saying something like that in a room full of academics a couple of years ago. And, I, you know, when I was used, I was attached added adjective. I say, you know, love that is robust and muscular. You know, Martin Luther King Jr. talked about a strong, demanding love, not emotional bosh. But we do have all this, this, this emotional bosh attached to what we, you know, love is a Subaru, right? It's one of the most overused words in the, in, in their, in the English language. Um, and yet it's a word we can't let go, and I think we have to fill it with all the complexity it has in life. So anyway, I was sitting with these academics, and this, this man, this scholar, said to me, well, well I, I really, I, I, of course I like that idea of bringing love, but, but I think that we grow and advance through disagreement. And, and, I, and, and he said, like, through disagreement and through through difference and through, through working things through when we're not alike. And I said, what you've just described sounds to me like a healthy, mature love relationship, right? So love in our lives has very little to do in any given moment with feeling perfectly understood or perfectly understanding. It doesn't have to do with likeness. It's more about action at any given moment than it is about how you feel. So, you know, and then I think you can, you can break that down, you know, what those little actions are. And um, I don't know, another example would be, um, and I talked to, in Silicon Valley, I had a lot of conversations with people in the tech companies about, 
you know, the fact that they didn't create or design the internet to be a place where we are spending our lives, but it has turned out being a place where we're spending our lives. And human beings are doing all the things that are human across the board, good, bad, and ugly. Um, and what we now have to do to humanize that is to apply social technologies, um, things that we actually know how to do in our analog lives, like um, you know hospitality, which has which has corollaries and versions and all kinds of richness in every culture, is actually really sophisticated social technology for inviting for bringing your best self into the room and inviting others to bring their best selves into the room. And then we have this digital life and all these, you know, right now, and all these, these things that spill over from the digital world where we behave more like human beings would behave if you, you know, in the absence of that, if you like opened up a vacant lot and said everybody come in and anything can happen and anything will happen and the bullies always have an outsized role in those spaces. So that's what I mean about intelligence we possess that we have to apply in all the spaces we're living. It's, it's not rocket science, as, they, as we used to say. So I'm wondering, um, because you've talked to all kinds of thinkers in your questions, I'm wondering if there is something that you notice that comes out that contributes the conversation from people involved in the creative process, whether right. it's making like a painter or a sculptor or writing like some of the poets you talk to. I'm wondering how you think that feeds into this conversation that's sort of not represented so much in the way we communicate in the everyday. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. There's so many ways to answer that. I guess the first thing that comes to mind is that um, you know, we are, we are living in this odd in-between moment where the forms that came out of the 20th century, the forms of our institutions, um, the forms of our shared life, they don't make sense anymore. And it's everything from how a school is constructed to how prisons work, to how healthcare works, right? Like, that's a very unsettling thing. And so, and, and you know, kind of we came out of the late 20th century with this idea that all we would ever need was reform, right? Like we basically cracked it. And we, you know, of course we could make it better, but you know, that, that's, we're also, we're learning on so many fronts how we're so much farther behind than we thought we were. And none of it makes sense anymore. So this is a moment where we need social creativity and social courage, and we need all of our creative force in our life energy, right? And so, you know, right now, um, in these last few years, I've been interviewing so many poets, and we put a poet on the air for the last two election weekends, and I expect that we will put poets on the air for the foreseeable future on election weekend. Um, <laughs> poets rise up in, in human society after human society, all over the world, all cultures, when official discourse is failing us and we are searching again for language that, um, to express what is deepest and truest and also where we, where we need, where we must in order to survive 
look at what is before us from a different angle and start again. Like that is the power of poetry. And um, you know, to me, that that's probably the most present example of how how the arts and the artistic orientation has kind of completely had to become absolutely central to the show in a way that I never would have expected when I started. Krista, my name is Milford. This is Terry. Hi. Um, other than brushing our teeth and getting up in the morning and saying we love each other when we go to sleep at night, this means to on me is the only ritual in our lives. No. We've been there for years. Hmm. So my question is about, um, it has to do with beauty. And I'm saying we are drawn to the magnificent conversations we've had with physicists and with poets. Because they really, um, really intermingle. Yeah. What you discuss um, about spiritual matters or religious matters we appreciate and get, and that's our, that's our own comfort zone. The conversation you have with um, poets um, and with physicists are just, um, they sparkle. I, just, I, I think I just want you to know that from devout listeners, because we search for beauty in our lives um, every day as mm. a meditation knowing that there is um, uncomfortable discourse or activities that go on even during the month. Hmm. I'm wondering what it would be like to you to have interviewed. Um, did you ever interview John O'Donoghue? Yes. Yeah. Have you not heard that one? That's, oh that is the on-being greatest hits of all time. <laughs> John O'Donoghue. In fact, it's called um, The Inner Landscape of Beauty. And um, so that's what came to mind when, I, when you mentioned the word beauty. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that also goes back to the last question. Um, you know, John O'Donoghue talked about beauty as a human calling. And I, I, it, 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 I think we needed to survive. We certainly needed for that to, to not just survive but flourish in a moment like this and beyond a moment like this. Um, you know, from, uh, I have this, this, there's this language in Islam of beauty as a core moral value, which I find so compelling. Um, and really useful and but you're right I mean physicists and anybody who works with mathematics will say that if something is not beautiful and elegant it is likely not true and John O'Donoghue's definition of beauty which I also find something that you can just walk around with is that because um, he well so he and I were talking also about this matter of how so many of the words that we need the most um, that give us life also get ruined, get overused and watered down culturally. So, so I asked him about the word beauty. I said, you know, the problem with the word beauty is that my mind might go to like that flawless face on the cover of a magazine. And he said, no, that's glamour. 
He said, beauty is that in the presence of which you feel more alive. It's life-giving. It's essential. I think poetry also, you know, beautiful language. And it's all, poetry is not all beautiful language, but like even when it is talking about hard things, it is, it is language that opens us up. It opens our hearts. Yeah. I had a, um, an, an 18 month clinical depression that changed my life by the first thing I noticed when I was coming out of that depression was my own breath. Hmm. And that was the beginning of my seeing beauty. I've been an artist all my life. Hmm. It was really seeing beauty at the depth of coming out of my own grief yeah. in a state of being very shut down. Uh, and so um, the yearning for um, identifying or paying attention to um, and honoring, respecting beauty wherever it is yeah. has become basically yeah, the spiritual discipline. Yeah? I was just going to follow up on that. And with John O'Donoghue, I'm not familiar with Stan Moore, the interview, but just maybe I do take two. But would he um, say that beauty is something that's objective? In other words, is, is an object in and of itself beautiful, or is it always an experience of interaction between? objects or two beings and in that sense you know because somebody can be before a piece of art or walk into a studio and not be moved at all yeah another person can go in and feel very much you know, have a heightened aliveness yeah um, and so it's sort of the question becomes beauty is beauty sort of a painting on the wall or is it that sort of interaction you know or is it a certain piece of music or is it some listening to yeah, well, I think that if you take that definition of that walking definition of, you know, anything, for some people it is going to be a painting and for some people it's going to be a piece of music and it can be a beautiful life and it can be experiencing your breath for the first time fully in your entire life. I mean, the interesting thing when scientists talk about beauty is that it's much less open to interpretation. Like, they know what a beautiful equation is. I have no idea what they're talking about. But if they're talking to each other, there's, you know, it's... Um, so that, that's interesting, too. You know, and, I, and I think that's an important question, too. I mean, again, we're not just like I'm saying, when I talk about love, I'm not talking about emotional bosh. When I talk about beauty, I'm talking about something, uh, you know, something robust, something deep, something substantive. Um, again, that what is it that makes us feel alive? And, and then what that, that moment of that life-giving experience allows us to do in the next moment. Um, I once, uh, to that notion of beauty as a core moral value, I once, a um, long time ago, in the early, early days of the show, which was the early post 9-11 years, um, I was with a rabbi and a Muslim scholar in Los Angeles, and I brought up this notion of beauty as a core, you know, what was so interesting is that this scholar who I was speaking with you know, we, he, I brought up the notion of the core moral value of beauty. The rabbi 
brought up this biblical idea of the beauty of holiness, which is this biblical phrase, um, in that context. And we ended up having a conversation about, I mean, that was a moment of incredible religious, of violence in the name of religion. And of course, that is still with us, but it was um, much more central in our imaginations at that time. And we ended up talking about some of the hardest things that are happening in the world through this litmus test, you know, of basically what does this beauty of holiness look like? What does beauty as a core moral value look like? And, and basically that it has an effect, right? That, that, that what is beautiful builds up and what is not beautiful, what is ugly tears down. And that you could actually start talking about geopolitics through this litmus test, this lens of is it beautiful, is it ugly? And you can talk about all the things we talk about, but it was, you know, it was a much more searching and deep conversation that actually brought the complexity of our humanity into the conversation through this lens of beauty. Who said that? It's the end of a great Keats poem. Oh. It says, uh, beauty's truth and truth is beauty, and that's yeah. all, you need to, all you know and all you need to know. Yeah. It's well, <laughs> it's a little more complicated than that, which is what your question was about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, we have a really counterculturally diverse um, community of listeners, and I think that, and I, and by that I mean politically, geographically, racially, socioeconomically. I think that. Um, you know, the medium of, of radio, which is, I mean, podcasting is radio 2.0, um, is interesting because it's, like, it's a very private experience. It's something you can do all by yourself. It's not part of a group. And yet, so it's, it's private and communal at the same time. So it's something you do on your own and it can just be personal and it doesn't have to be shared and yet the moment you put press play, you walk into this room, there's kind of this time shift and you're there with us in the moment of the conversation and with everybody else who listens whenever they listen. And what we experience is that, that people really use on being in that way to be this kind of different space and to actually be in conversation and be listening to 
to people, points of view, ways of thinking that culturally we're not good at holding that space uh, in flesh and blood. Um, I, my experience also, and I talked a lot about this out in Silicon Valley, is that if you set a tone, if you create an ethos, even for a media space, and I mean, you know, our, our podcasting is a digital space too. If, if you set an ethos and you set a tone, people actually join you at that level. It, it actually carries, and everybody becomes responsible for it. So what we started to see in our space and even online and on the website um, in the early days is that, uh, you know, all kinds of people are in there reacting, talking to each other, and somebody could could overstep the bounds and start to be personal in their attacks or rude in their attacks um, or demonizing and that that we didn't have to jump in and correct it that that the community itself like the people in the room would start to uphold that ethos and I think that's so much more possible in in the digital realm than we think it is the problem is that you actually have to have that kind of intentionality at the very beginning it's really hard if you set something loose to pull it back, right? So newspapers created comment sections, which just became cesspools. And like we all know, there are places online which are cesspools. It's very hard to do anything there but close it down and start something new. But then you also have to have a human presence in there. And um, I mean, there, you know, you, there are ways you have to shape the space, just like we shape spaces in life if we're gonna be around other people. But all that is also a long-winded way to say that I, I've actually been amazed at how little, we don't really, I, I don't really have that problem of people writing me yeah. hateful things. I, I, I've kept waiting for it to come. <laughs> and, um, and it's true of the show as well. It's not that it's never happened, but also when it happens, I try to respond, or we try to respond like it's actually a person who's talking and not a, an abstraction. And I find, you know, we do so much like anger for anger, uh, which is just easier when everybody's an abstraction. But if you just, you know, anger is generally, I think, you know, anger often is what pain and fear look like when they show themselves in public. Like we don't make a space for people to be vulnerable. It's not even smart to be vulnerable in a lot of our spaces. Um, but if you respond to as much to what is actually behind the words of another person, to be empathic about that, or just to, be, to care about that, as to what was said um, on the surface, I find that um, they often will then start to show you that. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, it's, that's been really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. and topics, and I was wondering what themes or topics you're 
particularly interested in right now. So do you mean that over time it feels like themes have, yeah, that just happens organically. That's yeah. so interesting. Yeah, what, well, okay, so I haven't, we pre-produced the whole summer before I left, and I can't remember what show is on this week, honestly. So I'm trying to think, though, um, I mean, one of the themes, like in the Ross Gay show this week, um, yeah, I really have to, like, I have to, I have to take my mind to a place I, I don't know if I can go back there. Um, I'm just trying to think of the last time we started. You know, it, it happens all the time. Like, it, and we are, I mean, we have some people who are so different from each other, but it repeatedly happens that something just starts to surface, and it's surfacing in almost every show for a while. And I think, I, you know, the, this notion that is in the, 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 the conversation with Ross um, about joy and delight and making of delight a practice. Um, that's a That's something that I started, and I think I said to him in the interview, is I've, I've been thinking about that for, I don't know, about a year. About a year ago, I was at a gathering of um, philanthropists and nonprofit leaders, um, and I was I was on stage with a, a really powerful, like the head of one of our major foundations, right? A person who uh, has genuine power, even in this moment. And he said to me, um, how, can we, how can we possibly feel joy in a moment like this? And I think I told Ross about that in the conversation. Um, and I, I found that, you know, and I think that that question is going around, and I think that especially people who care about all the injustice, and there is a lot of injustice, there are a lot of dangerous edges, there are a lot of people on front lines of danger. Mm -hmm. There's this idea that it would be, um, you know, maybe even that it would be wrong to, to find a light or to take joy, to let joy in. Um, that in fact it might be callous, that it might itself be a form of injustice. But, but one thing that's wrong, I mean there's, there are a lot of things that are wrong with that, and one thing that's wrong with that is the idea that joy and delight are privileges or luxuries, right? Like joy is a human birthright. And it is one of the things um, like an ability to take in beauty. Um, that becomes part of our resilience and even part of our resistance. Like what we love and take joy in, like that's why we fight. And um, so I think that that's, I think that's a big one right now. And then, you know, just the other day I was listening to, um, I, I really like Ezra, Ezra Klein, I don't listen to any political podcast, but I like Ezra Klein's podcast, and he was interviewing this young woman who's really on the front lines of this whole new, well, just like the, the climate, the new generations reckoning with climate and calling the whole culture to reckon with that. And she also, just as an aside, you know, talked about how part of the way you get the power for this 
is to know what you take joy in. Like joy is part of the energy we have. And earlier this year, I interviewed this um, British uh, naturalist um, who wrote this incredible book, which I just happened to pick up at a at an independent bookstore called. Um, I think the book had, does not have a good title, which is one reason it didn't sell. It's called The Moth Snowstorm. But his whole idea, and he's somebody who is, um, he is charting, you know, what he calls not just the extinction, but the thinning of species, you know, of insects and plants and flowers and birds. But he also says that we've focused so much in our, in our, in the battle, um, you know, that we've we've decided to make the case in terms of the science and and um, the catastrophe, and not say like why why do we save the natural world? Because it is such a, it is the what does he say? Like it is the. It is the birthplace of our imagination, of our metaphors, of our soul, right? Like, like before we made of the natural world another, we weren't, we weren't, we were, we were not just part of wilderness. We were wilderness, and um, and you know, Ross Gay, who is African American, you know, talks about, you know. We fight like that. That part of fighting for justice is having just an absolutely robust sense of what is good and necessary and beautiful and what we love. And we don't have to give up one or the other. That those those things go hand in hand. So yeah, that's been like I would not have talked about this a year ago, and it's been really fascinating to see that theme build and build and build. I mean, I just and this is part of what my book is about too. Is like what I see is that when we when we, not, when we not only take in, constantly take in this diet, this barrage of what's going wrong, what's going wrong, what's going wrong, and the examples of the worst exemplars of our species, the only thing we really pay attention to, it is just depleting and demoralizing us. If that's, if that's what we do, we will give up, right? So, so this, this what I'm talking about is very pragmatic. Like it's not beautiful in a flowery way. Mm -hmm. um, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about your craft as an interviewer because I've just always been so impressed how the conversations go deep and they go deep in things that are very difficult to talk about. And so how do you know when you have the right questions and are there certain something about a kind of question or an order or is it particular to each person? Yeah, it's it's so what so I what I do I mean I do have this question that I almost always start with or I start with some version and that's and it and it's a question that I know um, the question is about just in just asking somebody to think about whether there was a religious or spiritual background to their life, whatever that might mean. Um, and, the, and it, you know, 
a lot of people have, I, I think many of us have interesting stories uh, in response to that, to that question, even if um, we did not have a traditional, you know, even in the absence of uh, a traditional religious or spiritual background. But the, the really important reason I ask that question is because it, it plants the conversation. It's, it's, it plants the conversation from the outset um, it gets people out of the mode that we basically are trained to walk around in in public, which is presentational. Um, that question gets people into memory, it's like like who you, the, the who who you are rather than what you know, which is again what we like get trained to put out front. And and when we get into memory, we get embodied uh, rather than just cerebral and it I that question about the not you know it's a very different question from if I asked you are you religious or spiritual at which I think most of us including me would freeze up and say something trite um, but that question about your childhood it it actually takes people into a place of softness and searching and a place where a lot of questions live and often where the, you know, questions that people follow the rest of their life, like that's what they find there. So, so that's why I start, so I've, I've tried and true, I know that that's a good place to start a conversation, 99% of the time. Um, or some, I know how to vary that too. Um, it's not always, it, but it's a variation on, on that. Um, but then I just immerse in, uh, for every person, I, I really immerse in, um, I say, you know, I'm interested not just in what they know, but how they think. And um, so, I don't know how I would have done this before the internet, but with the internet, um, I mean, of course, if people have written books, I read books. Um, but I'll, I'll look for like other interviews they've given, or also if I can find something written about them 20 years ago. Like, that's really interesting to kind of see the arc of somebody's development. Um, and then what I find, so I probably will have, you know, going into something, I will have questions I think I will ask, and very often most of those fall away. Um, I let the questions emerge from, from what I learn. And wh what I think happens if I do that is that I, I formulate questions that are going to be interesting to them as opposed to just questions that would be interesting to me. And if I ask questions that are interesting to them, then, it, then it's going to become much more than a Q&A. Then, then it's going to be an adventure. And um, I sometimes talk about my, um, yeah, I would say one more thing about that is that, you know, again, another effect of that, uh, quite apart from the questions that it yields, is that when I sit down with somebody, um, even, and this translates, even if they are, as they often are, like I'm in a studio somewhere and they're in a studio halfway across the country or halfway across the world, um, you know, we humans meet each other at an animal level. Like there's so much that goes on before any words are spoken or by the end of the first sentence that comes out of our mouths. And we, um, we all know the, you know the judgment call you make when you meet a new person, if you're gonna have to explain yourself or defend yourself or be on guard or 
this experience that you have occasionally where you say, where you feel, you feel it in your body, oh, they get me. And so I, I think of all that preparation also as work of hospitality. And, um, and I, and I, and I want to meet them there. And, and sometimes, um, sometimes it happens right away, sometimes it takes 10 or 15 minutes. But when you, when you make that, when you cross that boundary, then again, you know, some, it opens up all kinds of possibilities for what can happen. And what I am always hoping for, I mean, for me, the mark of a good conversation is that something surprising happens. And by that, I mean not just that I'm surprised, but that somebody surprises themselves, that they say that they put words around something in this conversation that they've never quite put words around that way before. And then what's so exciting about this you know, this miracle technology, this medium of radio, is that everybody who joins the conversation is there for that moment of revelation and surprise. Krista, do you have um, a couple favorite moments like that or other that happened during interviews? You, you told the story at our picnic about helping studs turkle Oh yeah, that was a great one. Yeah, yeah and that really stuck yeah. with me. I wondered if there were some other moments. Yeah, no, share. you know, I often get asked like, "What are my favorite interview? What's my favorite interview ever?" And I just, I always say it's the last one I did. I mean, I, um, yeah, I'll tell that story. I mean, that was amazing. I mean, Studs Terkel, who was a great oral historian of the 20th century, and I interviewed him when he was, he was, in, he was well into his 90s. He, he may, I think I said 93 the other, he may have even been 98. But, and so this man who had made, whose life's work was being a listener. And at that point in his life, he couldn't, he, he, he was as functionally deaf. And uh, to the extent that he, I mean, he was very, he was, he was, you know, a force of nature and joyful and always laughing, but he carried around this, board that he would write on so when he was having a conversation with somebody um, I mean he could speak but then he would um, they would they would write to him what they had to say and so we went in with our equipment and um, put headphones on him these these industrial quality audio headphones and he could hear again and um, it was just like this moment when his, you know, and we were in his living room, right? Because he couldn't go into a radio studio anymore, but we brought it to him. And um, just, re you know, that, that was pretty miraculous, giving somebody there, giving Studs Terkel his ears again for 45 minutes. Um, yeah. I was going to say, and I, th I think I think it's a, an interesting thing in, in this place, um, I think those of us who are writers know, uh, and even people who are not writers, you know, writing in a journal. Um, there's something about, as, <laughs> as agonizing as writing can be on a day like this, like the day I just had, um, there's something mysterious about how, uh, I mean, I know that one reason I write is to learn what I think, right? And there's something mysterious that happens um, and perhaps this happens in, in every art form, that in the act of writing, 
you learn that you know things you didn't know. And um, what I have learned is that conversation has the same effect. So, you know, that's, that's why like, there can be this moment of surprise because there's something about thinking out loud together with another person that you can say things you had never said before and didn't know it was in you to speak. And of course that is, you know, it's a, it's a wonderful thing when it happens privately uh, in the pages of a notebook and it's a wonderful thing to share with somebody. Mm -hmm. um, I have a question that might be a little annoying, but... Um, <laughs> I'm not easily annoyed by questions. I think of you as this carrier of wisdom. Sorry, that seems like a funny thing to yell at you right now. Um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm wondering on a daily basis, like, mm -hmm. what's your personal striving? Like, what do you look for in a day, or what's a good day to you on a personal level? Or a because I'm so wise, is that? <laughs> because there's all this wisdom, and that's kind of up here, but bringing yeah. it down into like a smaller unit, like what? <laughs> I, yeah, what's a good day look like to you? <laughs> like I, don't, I don't think a good day for me is probably that different from a good day for you. think that the answer to that question, I mean, certainly as I move through my weeks and my months and my years, I, that gets infused with these conversations I'm having. But I would say at this stage in my life, you know, the answer to that question changes so much with the, yeah, with the, with the place I'm you know, I would have answered that question very differently when, when I had young children or teenagers at home. And honestly, <laughs> the answer would have been like, <laughs> get to bedtime. <laughs> um, I used to think it was so funny when my kids when my kids were teenagers and people would ask me a version of this question, which was, uh, yeah, or they would just talk about how serene I am, or you know, my voice is so soothing, and I would just be, I would just say like, just ask my children how soothing my voice is, you know. Um, I mean, so it's like I still, whatever wisdom I have, I still have these raw materials of life to deal with, and and if I think about that question. To me, it's so much more about this point I'm at in life um, and growing older, which is so interesting and, you know, unnerving in some ways, but really interesting. And uh, I had to be very driven to, um, and very, and I, you know, I, I actually, I think most of the people who knew me for the first 40 years of my life, certainly, and 
people who were, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm intense, right? Like I, 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 so, you know, so for me, um, some of my goals are very, uh, basic. Like for me, having a sense of calm that I can really carry with me all the way through the day, you know, these are things I've learned through living a long time. <laughs> I don't have any romantic answer. <laughs> yeah. But is there anything that you turned away from any career path? Uh, I'm thinking like an analyst or a therapist. Oh, heard? no, you know, that's what's been interesting or to me. Yeah, no. Well, I went, to, I went to Divinity School and I knew after, and I, I, I didn't think, I didn't go there thinking that I wanted to be ordained. Um, but I, you know, I. That could be a possibility, but I knew after about two days that it wasn't a possibility. Um, I've had a lot. Of, it's been interesting because I've had I, ha I hear from a lot of therapists that they, you know, that that I that I ask good questions from their standpoint, and I and I, um, but I, I never thought about I never thought about doing that. I mean, I had I had a very different career in my twenties. I was I was. I was political. I was I was a journal. I was a reporter, and I was and then I was a diplomat in divided Berlin, in another world. So I do feel like I've had a couple of different lifetimes, um, and that uh, it was very exciting and fascinating, and has and really still forms me. Everything I did there, um, but I, you know, what unnerved me. Um, there, which was a lot about the disconnect between um, what is happening at this very high political level and what actually matters in people's lives, and like how people create lives of beauty and dignity and meaning, which is often completely disconnected and at odds from what is happening up here. Um, you know, that was I, what I kind of realized is I want to work there. I want, I'm, I want to know, I want to be at that human level. Um, so I think that that was that a point at which I made this big choice. I mean, I didn't know then, I had no idea that this is what I would end up doing. And I had never done radio. Um, but it's interesting because that particular, like the, the dynamics of that time were completely different. It was a Cold War world. I mean, just starting there, it was completely different. But I feel like that drama uh, and, 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 and seeing it in a very different context and seeing how it unfolded in a different context really serves me well because we're in another moment where that, that same dynamic, right, that same human condition problem um, is right on top of us. So in that sense, I'm still working on some of the same things. Hmm. Anybody back there? Mm-hmm.
is doing what? It's almost swallowing. Oh, swallowing, yeah. Yeah. And so how do we resolve that? Of like, as you said, bringing our best selves, but then how do you negotiate when maybe someone else, either intentional or not, breaks that? Yeah, so, so what I see is that um, I think we have to be able to operate in a few different modes. Like, I mean, I, I don't really like the toolkit analogy, it's kind of overused, but I feel like, and, and I also, so I think, I don't think we do have to resolve, like we don't have to do both of those things at every moment. We don't have to choose between those things at every moment. I think there are times when it is right and um, the only thing that's appropriate to call things out, but I feel like, um, that's all we really are good at right now. Like those are the only muscles we're flexing and teaching people to flex. Like we're all advocates and there's a place for that. Um, but we, there's also a place if, if what we wanna do, like it, cause we, at one and the same time in a moment like this, we have to be fighting what needs to be fought and we need to be sowing the seeds of the world we want to live in. And one reason I, I think it's hard to see that, like to take that in, is that um, we also deal psychologically in worst case scenario thinking. So, and, and actually this is a natural thing that our brains do, right? And again, if we are like confronted constantly with the worst case example of what the other side is, whatever that side is, or the most dangerous violent, um, we, start to asso we start to feel like the other side is full of those people, and that's not, right? Like every moment is not a worst case scenario. Every person is not a worst case scenario. There's a lot of diversity on that other side. And what we, we're not as sophisticated at seeing that. So, what I'm not saying, like I think there are absolutely parameters around when I talk about creating spaces where we're being hospitable. There are certainly people and situations where that is not reasonable and might even be dangerous. But that's the extreme. And what I want us to do is build out this big space in the middle where there are a lot of people who are not like us. Um, but it's not dangerous, right? And there's a lot that we don't understand. And there's a lot that they don't understand about us. Um, so I, I think if it's, it's much less of an either or. But there is work to do. Again, like we aren't flexing these other muscles. Of, of We're so focused on the, you know, the worst the polarized extremes at both ends of whatever. I mean, just, just dividing everything into two sides is like part of our pathology, right? But in any given thing, right, we can say there are two sides. But most of us live in the middle somewhere. And I'm not talking about the center. I think, you know, the center bores me, right? Like, I'm not sure if the center is real or if it's that interesting. Like, there, if there's a center, great, let it be there. But 
I think we're very interesting and most of us are, you know, somewhere over here or somewhere over there or again, like, it's not actually two sides of something, it's something with a hundred sides and some of us are over here a little bit on this and right and that's where we have to start to gather and yes that is going to ask us to to use some of these skills that we have of like creating a hospitable space so that something new can happen and not immediately confront because we know that that like that's just not what we do in our lives when we decide that we want to care about people. Um, it does mean that, that sometimes, you know, that you're going to decide that this is not the moment to, you know, just like this. Like, how much do we do that in our private lives? I really want to say this, this needs to be said, but this is not the moment. If what I care about is that it gets heard. Or yes, we need to talk about that, but to talk about that now would be stupid. Like this is again very pragmatic. And also, just to the word stupid, I just, you know, I, I cannot prove this, but I know it is true that not a single person, that I'm not a single member of our species has ever gotten better because somebody else told them they were stupid. Like we know this in life, but in public life we're going around telling perfect strangers whose lives we don't understand all the time, like we're treating them like they are just like this person over here who's dangerous, that they're stupid. And it's making things worse. So it's like, the question is, uh, do we want to also not just address what needs to be addressed but move beyond that? And so then we're going to have to have like different keys. And I also don't think everybody has to do all these things. I think some people are called to be fighters and some people are in danger and need to protect themselves and some people are called to throw their bodies in front of other bodies that are in danger and some of us are called to be calmers of fear and some of us are called to create hospitable spaces that there are many callings and some of us are called to create beautiful things right like create right like this is also all of these things we need all of this to become who we want to be that's a wonderful place to end oh that was fast <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah thank you, thank you. <laughs>